Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Organic BC, a nonprofit organization that celebrates, champions, and advocates for the organic sector and broader organic community in British Columbia. Learn more at organicbc.org. My name's Jordan Marr. I'm a BC-based organic farmer, and I'm the host of this podcast. In late 2020, in light of uncertainty caused by the pandemic, Organic BC developed an alternative to its regular in-person annual conference. The conference was mostly online, and its centerpiece was a 40-episode podcast that it produced for conference ticket holders. Our intention was to eventually make these episodes available for free to the public, and what you're about to hear is one of those episodes. Our plan is to release them all on this podcast feed over the next few months. Meanwhile, the Organic BC Conference Committee is busy planning your next conference, which will, once again, take place in person. But it's also going to include a smaller slate of new podcast episodes to be released in January. I'll provide more info about all of that throughout the fall, but for now, I hope you enjoy this episode from the 2021 conference podcast. Oh, and by the way, we also incorporated the annual conference trade show into this podcast series, so we may or may not be taking a break in the middle of this episode for a short trip to that trade show. You'll know what I mean if you hear it. Okay, talk to you at the end, everybody. One major focus of this podcast series is what we've called our research roundup. I sought participation from a few different research institutions across the country so that we could hear about recent research of interest to the organic food and farming community. In this first installment, I talked to Dr. Chandra Moffat, a research scientist focused on entomology and biological pest control at the Summerland Research and Development Centre, which is run by Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Chandra tells us about her work on two recent studies that involve the use of parasitoid wasps in the control of two different serious tree fruit pests in BC. Chandra's work is really cool, and this conversation was super interesting. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, my name's Chandra Moffat. I'm a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Summerland, BC, and I study invasive insects and cropping systems and invasive weeds and rangelands. Chandra Moffat, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Chandra, this conversation is going to be part of our research roundup. And so I'd better start just by asking you what you what your focus is in your work as a researcher in uh, Summerland at the research station there. Yeah, so I've been here for a little over two years and I've been with Agriculture Canada for a little over four. And I'm an entomologist, so that means I study insects. And of course, in the context of agriculture, um, that means that I study insects that feed on crops. So my research program here um, is to identify the uh, insects that are threats to primarily horticultural cropping systems and tree fruits in particular, to learn more about the biology and ecology of those insects, and to understand how their populations can be regulated and how we can use natural enemies of those insects to reduce their damage. And is the nature of your work such that much of your observations and results are fairly specific to the Okanagan re region or are a lot of them, do a lot of them tend to be, are you aiming to, for them to be more applicable, you know, to various regions where, for example, fruit trees are grown? I think that's a great question. And I would say that we're always trying to do both. So my work is based here, and so the, the primary groups that I work to serve would be local stakeholders, so local growers, but um, 
Agriculture Canada is national and our mandate is national. And that means that the work we do is in the public good and to benefit all Canadians. And so the work that I would do on particular insects, if they're insects that are at this point in time restricted to the Okanagan, then I would be primarily benefiting growers in the Okanagan. But a lot of the insects I work on are distributed in other parts of Canada and the world. As well, the knowledge, the things we learn about um, particular insects as scientists often can give us new insights into how insects in general or particular types of insects may live, their life history, their biology and ecology. So, so it's sort of a spectrum. We hope to have a local impact, but also that uh, in a scientific sense, will uh, generate new knowledge that helps us and other scientists understand more about how insects interact with their environment. Very cool, Chandra. So you and I spoke ahead of the interview and decided we would uh, focus this conversation on a couple of particular pests that you've been uh, researching. And we're going to start with the spotted wing Drosophila. So this will, yeah, be, yeah. this will be known to many, uh, many people listening, but it, it, it would probably be helpful to give us um, a description of this pest and a little bit of its history as it, you know, as it arrived in British Columbia. Yeah, so spotted wing drosophila is a little tiny fruit fly. And fruit flies have a really bad reputation. And spotted wing drosophila certainly has not improved that reputation in the minds of growers. Uh, spotted wing, as we refer to it, um, it was detected in British Columbia in 2009. And it had short it had been detected in North America in the US shortly before then. And it was introduced from uh, Central Asia to the US, to Canada, and to many parts of Europe all at around the same time and quickly really spread in its distribution and started having heavy impacts in berries and cherries. And so, you know, the fruit flies that we're familiar with are in our kitchen, they're in our drains, they're in the rotting fruit and the compost. But why spotted wing has been so successful is that it's able to occupy what we call a niche or a specialized sort of ecological habitat or role that nobody else, no other fruit flies or insects can really occupy. And that's because it has a really uh, special and interesting adaptation. So this sounds a little technical, but it's really why spotted wing is so successful and so interesting. So I'll, I'll get a little technical. Insects lay their eggs with what's called an ovipositor. And so for other fruit flies, they have kind of a feeble ovipositor and they need really soft, rotting fruits, fungi, things that are really permeable. But spotted wing has evolved to have a really serrated ovipositor. And that means the female flies can land on a ripening fruit. And even though the skin is really taut and thick, they're able to pierce the skin of the ripening fruit and lay their eggs into the fruit, say a cherry or a blueberry, while it's still on the tree or shrub. Because other fruit flies aren't doing that, they've really exploited this almost untapped resource. And that's how they became so widely established so quickly and why they have such devastating impacts. Yeah, this is really, really terrible for uh, producers of fruit, both on trees and I know berries as well, um, potentially other, other crops, I would assume, um, because, because now, now, now the fruit fly can have an impact not just after harvest, but, but before and potentially ruin a crop. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the work that I do does not revolve around uh, chemical insecticides, but I am aware that, you know, it requires several in-season applications to control spotted wing drosophila, you know, and 
in the past for cherries, we were really only having to manage for Western cherry fruit fly. The pest management regime was quite simple. And with spotted wing on the scene, it's meant huge inputs of pesticides, whether those are conventional or organic pesticides, huge inputs um, into cherry and berry production. And the major consequence being expense for producers or are, are we talking like, what about, what is the, are we having to use like um, pesticides that are more toxic than what we were using before? Or can you give me a sense of like, of, of, of the impacts of, of the reality of having to control with sprays, whether it's in conventional systems or organic? Yeah, I mean, to be very frank, I would say the organizations like the BC cherry growers and the blueberry growers, them and their growers would tell you about those impacts much better than I could. But the sense that I have is that growers are really frustrated for a number of reasons. I mean, it's a huge increase in cost, whether those are conventional or particularly if you're using organic products like the spinosids. It's a huge increase in expense, in labor, in monitoring for fruit flies. But also, you know, in cherries, when we only were really managing for Western cherry fruit fly, we weren't having to put products into the system that would disrupt the balance with natural enemies of insects. And so now we're in a situation where these sprays mean our orchards are pretty devoid of beneficial insects as well. Uh, so the sprays in question are not very targeted then is what you're saying. Unfortunately, they're, they're not very targeted. And, you know, for your audience, particularly products like an interest, um, you know, organic growers are so, in my view, there's so few products to choose from. Um, and the spinosids are unfortunately not very specific. And in my previous role, when I worked for agriculture in Fredericton, and I'm still involved in that work, I do uh, insecticide resistance work. And we do see um, with other insects, for sure, that they can develop resistance to entrust after a number of years. Um, and with so many applications for spotted wing control in, say, organic cherries, it really concerns me that that, that may not be a sustainable path for organic production of cherries, both because natural enemies in the system are reduced, but because we don't have alternate chemicals to ensure that we can rotate and delay the development of insecticide resistance. So is it, it's my impression that if, if, if you, if you, let's say you are a cherry grower and let's say you're an organic cherry grower and, and you, you spotted wing arrives in your, on your land, you kind of have no choice but to deal with it one way or the other, right? It's not like a pest that's just going to wipe out 10% of your crop. It's, it's, it's fairly is it is it fair to say it's fairly devastating when it is once it arrives on your in your orchard? So the impacts definitely can vary, but once it's present, I would say it's not going anywhere. And so growers are able to monitor levels of infestation, but a lot of growers are proactively spraying. But some some research that that we've been doing in Summerland over the last few years, it really focuses on what spotted wing are doing when they're not in the cherries. And so my predecessor, Dr. Howard Thistlewood, who's recently retired, he spent a few years early on uh, trying to determine which species of native fruit bearing shrubs spotted wing drosophila was living in in the off season. 
And we are also continuing that research. And we've been looking to really understand what we call the population dynamics. So the sort of density and timing of spotted wing drosophila and how that depends on um, what we call the non-crop non host plant community. So the different trees and shrubs that may be surrounding an orchard and how spotted wing populations may build up in these reservoirs. And then that can increase um, the incidence and damage of spotted wing in cherry blocks. So essentially your predecessor and probably I'm assuming you have spent, you're focusing on understanding the life cycle so that we can potentially disrupt it. Is that fair to say? That's right, exactly. And so I'm part of right now a larger project uh, funded by the Organic Science Federation of Canada um, through uh, the Canadian Agricultural Partnership. And so that's a program where organizations like the, the Organic Federation, they're able to pool resources together from, um, from different growers, associations and fundraise. And they're able to put up 30% of those funds and, for, and decide what projects they wanna fund. And then Agriculture Canada will fund the remaining 70%. So it's it's a great way to ensure that, um, you know, we do do what I call more basic research as well, but it's a great way to ensure that scientists like myself are doing work that really matters to growers and to growers associations because they're choosing the projects they want to fund. So this project that I'm part of is called Ecological Pest Management for Spotted Wing Drosophila. And it's uh, led by Dr. Julie Carrillo at UBC Vancouver in Land and Food Systems. And so my portion of the project is, like we said, um, understanding more about the biology and ecology of spotted wing in the environments here in the Okanagan where it's living in the off season. And Dr. Carrillo also is looking at um, a number of different tactics that she would call push-pull, where she's looking at if she can uh, intercrop, for instance, with uh, different species like, like mint, like alyssum, and see if those have um, an impact on reducing spotted wing populations as well. And in that latter example, in a sense of disruption because of, I mean, I'm probably, this is probably too rudimentary in thinking, but um, just in terms of, in terms of the, the, um, the, the pungence of those crops? Pretty much. And so the idea is that uh, the insects would be attracted into that system um, based on the, the crop. Um, they can also be attracted a bit by um, just by having flowers um, in the in the in the interrow. Um, but then when they are trying to persist in that environment, that the, the volatiles from things like mint and alyssum may provide um, a deterrent. And so what they've been working on and other researchers in Canada and the U.S. as well is they've been able to demonstrate that mints and alyssum do have that kind of deterrent effect um, when the concentration of the, the volatiles from those plants are really high in the air um, and on kind of a small scale. And so Dr. Carrillo's lab over the last couple of years has been trying to take that into the field and determine, you know, OK, we see these results in the lab. Can we actually make it work in the field? So. That's a portion of the work that, that she does, but we sort of the benefit of this larger project is that we have a number of different researchers who are trying to tackle the problem of spotted wing drosophila from a number of different angles. And there's been some really exciting developments recently. 
All right. Well, Chandra, let's let's talk about those. That'll that'll be what what listeners are really interested in hearing. So um, I'll I'll kind of keep that open ended. Uh, you know, you can you can focus on your specific work or your colleagues. But I'd love to hear about about some of the the promising findings coming out of this work. Right. So. I had, I had said that I wanted to make sure we talked about biological control, but I think I probably need to introduce that now for it to, for what I'm going to tell you to make sense. So some of the, the work that my that I do here in Summerland and my colleagues do um, is looking at how we can use natural enemies, beneficial insects to control invasive insects that cause damage to crops. And so when we have an invasive like spotted wing in, uh, in a new area, we first look to see what insects already occur here that may be able to have, um, well, for us, a beneficial impact, but really for spotted wing, a detrimental impact. So early on, um, researchers identified that there were some promising insects. These are called parasitoid wasps. And if you've never heard about parasitoids before, um, they're really neat. They've been on NPR recently on Science Fridays. They've been on Quirks and Quarks. Um, they're little tiny insects. They are a wasp or a hymenoptera. Uh, they're usually so small you can barely see them. And they live, off, they live by parasitizing um, other insects. And so for spotted wing, what you have are these little parasitoid wasps that can smell that spotted wing are already that have laid eggs in the fruit. And they can smell that a little larva is developing. And this little parasitoid will come along. It'll also puncture through the fruit, through your blueberry or cherry, and it'll lay its egg right into the developing spotted wing larva. So that's not necessarily a direct benefit for the grower for that particular individual berry or cherry, but what it means is that that fly never hatches and it never produces offspring. So we call these little wasps when they're doing that work biological control agents, um, and they can have a really impactful role in suppressing pest populations. So when we started looking here um, in Western Canada and North America, we had a few insects that seemed like they might be promising because they parasitize or attack other native Drosophila species. But unfortunately, they only impacted a very, very small amount of the population and weren't really doing a great job. So the next thing we do, and it's a, a really rigorous scientific process, um, is we begin to look overseas. So we we go, or we have colleagues that work in these regions, we go back to what we call the native range of this invasive insect. So back to China, Japan, Korea, where spotted wing comes from. And we see that in those areas, sure, spotted wing is present, but it's not a pest that causes economic damage. It's, it persists at very low levels. And that's because it's co-evolved with specialist natural enemies like parasitoid wasps, like fungi or bacteria that are able to regulate its populations. So we identified um, three different species of parasitoid wasps in Asia, in Asia that all play a very important role in regulating the populations of spotted wing Drosophila. So that's the research we normally do. And then the next steps that we normally do are, uh, and we, we got going on this, to set up a quarantine facility. So I have a quarantine in Summerland. We spend a ton of time, and I'd love to tell you more about this, um, looking to see what are the native species, and in this case, native fruit flies, that could potentially be at risk if we bring parasitoids over. And then we bring the parasitoids into quarantine. We have the native fruit fly species in quarantine, and we do what we call host range testing to determine if these parasitoids would be any threat to our native and beneficial fruit flies. 
this is the way it normally goes. And normally then we would make a decision. Yes, these parasitoids are effective against spotted wing and they don't have any adverse impacts on native fruit flies. Um, and in this case, the parasitoids, one of them at least is extremely specific to just spotted wing. Normally we then write up this very large scientific document and submit it to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency and they conduct a scientific review and determine, um, a, they do a risk benefit analysis to see, you know, is it worth bringing these parasitoids into, North, into Canada? But what happened in 2009 is uh, when my colleague, Paul Abram at Agassiz, he has the, the same role as me, when he was surveying for spotted wing populations, he saw raspberry bushes teeming with these little parasitoid wasps. And it was something he hadn't seen before. And it was something that our colleagues and predecessors hadn't seen before. And so he determined um, using um, both traditional morphological methods and molecular methods, that not one, but two species of parasitoid wasps that are specialists on spotted wing had been accidentally introduced from Asia. And they must have been contaminants in fruit. We have no idea how they got here. We hadn't even imported them to our quarantine. So there's, there's no way that they were human assisted. They just got here on their own. So it's time to take another trip to the COABC conference trade show. And for this episode, I've got Brian Spencer, who is the president of Applied Bionomics, which is a company based on Vancouver Island. And I'm excited to, to hear about their line of biological pest control. Brian, thanks a lot for joining me. No, thank you for, uh, for the invitation. Brian, in a nutshell, what, what, do, what, what products and services do you folks offer? Well, we, we uh, uh, produce uh, biological controls for, uh, originally it was for the glasshouse uh, uh, food industry, like the peppers and the tomatoes. And uh, what we realized was that in most cases, these products are either native and uh, relatively abundant outside at certain times of the year, or uh, or do adapt very well for uh, outdoor applications or or indoor organics. So we uh, we've been expanding our company uh, into uh, the organic and the ornamental industry um, uh, because there's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities with the uh, the pest problems that everybody encounters. Um, we give away the knowledge for free. We have a, a very good interactive website with a lot of information on it. Uh, what we sell are the actual arthropods, either mites. Uh, we have a couple of uh, coccinellids, which are ladybugs. Um, we do midges. We do parasitic wasps for uh, for control of whitefly as well. So, uh, so we try and look at generalists that have a wide range of uh, hosts that they can feed on, and we also work with specifics that are very specific to certain species of pests. I see. So is it fair to say then that uh, you could have, I mean, I'm probably oversimplifying, but a couple different kinds of customers, one who just wants to increase the diversity of um, predatory beneficials on the farm versus I have a very specific problem with mites in my tomatoes and I can come to you for a specific solution? Yes. Yeah, yes to both. Very cool, Brian. So uh, now, is it safe to say that most or all of the products you offer are um, permitted for use in organic agriculture in British Columbia? Yes, there's, there's really no restrictions. These are all, uh, in most cases, native products. They're all approved for release uh, throughout the country, either in protected culture like glasshouses or in field crops. 
So if people are interested in learning more, they can go to appliedbio-nomics.com or I assume they you kind of have a helpline. Is that right, Brian? They could they could call the helpline. Yeah, yeah. We usually try and uh, if we're going to have a long discussion, the first question is, have you looked at the website? <laughs> there's a ton of information there, and uh, and yeah, I would I would definitely recommend going through it first. But there's a lot of uh, good information on the website. Well, Brian Spencer of Applied Bionomics, thanks very much for for talking to me. This was really interesting. Oh, it, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's AppliedBio-Nomics.com. There's no way that they were human-assisted. They just got here on their own. That's, that's, that's pretty interesting and fascinating because I was waiting uh, for my chance just to follow up and say, okay, so you obviously have to be very careful about introducing a new species and its impacts, but you mentioned only focusing on its impacts, for example, on, on other uh, uh, species of Drosophila. Um, but, you know, because you don't, you don't want to cause, uh, you know, another problem. Um, but in some ways, uh, it sounds like that responsibility... Um, was became un, in a sense can become unnecessary if meanwhile you find uh, some species that got out over here, you know, on their own somehow, like that had nothing to do with your research. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the reason I, I sort of got into that before you had to ask is because it's a question I'm always asked, right? So the work that I do is called biological control. And of course, everyone's, you know, if they, if they're not familiar with it, their first course questions are, well, is it safe? Why would you want to bring in another species? Isn't there a risk? And so what I would say is there's a risk with any kind of pest management for sure. And we know that all other pest management options have a, a demonstrated risk and adverse effect. So bringing in another, an insect that's extreme specialist to control a pest insect in most cases is a much less risky scenario than using conventional or organic pesticides. Um, and then as scientists, the work that we do, you know, we're specialists in, uh, in insects and in their ecology and their evolution and have a very good understanding of what factors limit their ability to impact other insects. And so we don't just test the Drosophila, for instance, but we would test other flies and other insects. Um, but the most parasitic wasps are are so specific and we only choose ones that are highly specific to one or a few species so if we look in asia at all the insects that feed on spotted wing drosophila there's probably one or two hundred and we narrowed it down first to three then to two then really only to one that we would deem is specific enough to spotted wing that it doesn't pose any threat to native fruit flies or other insects and is that the one like so, so take me back to the 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 raspberry bushes teeming with with an un, like an unexpected parasitoid wasp. Was that the one? Yeah. So there, like I mentioned, there's two, and the the first one they found is a little bit more. It's still very specific to fruit flies. Um, it does. It is known to attack some fruit flies um, that are sort of 
household pests like uh, Drosophila melanogaster, which is the, the fruit fly you often see in your kitchen. So it can occasionally attack that species as well. Um, it's still pretty specific. We, we probably wouldn't have chosen to introduce that fruit fly just because, yeah, it can attack some native fruit flies at very low levels, but it was a little, yeah, it's probably a choice we wouldn't have made. The other fruit or the other parasitoid wasps though, that I mentioned is so highly specific. And that one, it was first only detected around Hope. And this year, my colleague, Dr. Paul Abram was able to find it distributed all over Vancouver Island and the Fraser Valley. So that's really good news uh, for growers in those regions that these parasitoid wasps are what we call adventive. They've become pretty widely established. And Paul has spent a lot of time this year trying to determine what kind of impacts they are having uh, in different, different berry cropping systems, conventional and organic in the Fraser Valley. And he's just at the beginning of that work. So, and then what's really interesting though, so here I was just gonna say in the Okanagan, we did surveys as well and the parasitoid wasps are absolutely not present here. Okay, so now we've got a giant laboratory uh, in the Fraser Valley and on Vancouver Island. Wasn't your fault, but it now you know creates some potentially um, really helpful uh, situations here. So what is the best case scenario for this one specific species that is now spreading uh, down, down in the mm -hmm. southern part of BC? So I think the best case that we see right now is that, like I talked about, spotted wing is able to really build up to such high population densities because it uses the non-crop shrub environment, other fruiting shrubs like elderberry, like dogwood, like huckleberry as a reservoir. Um, so the populations of spotted wing really build up there. And then when the fruit on the on the shrub or the cherry tree is ready, those parasitoids come right in. So with other pest management methods, we're really restricted to only, you know, spraying or using cultural methods right in the cropping environment. But the problem with spotted wing is that you can't, you literally can't control it in the crop environment. What's so amazing about biological control and parasitoid wasps is they go wherever the host is. So they follow spotted wing into that non-crop environment and they're able to reduce their populations everywhere, which means less pressure coming into the field. So what I think it'll mean for growers at this stage, growers will still have to spray, but what we're quite optimistic about is that spotted wing populations over time, not, not right now, not next year, but hopefully they'll be they'll be able to be regulated by the parasitoids but below economic damage thresholds. We'll still always have spotted wing Drosophila, but we won't have these sort of unregulated, unchecked, crazy populations of spotted wing that come in from the non-crop environment. Chandra, that's probably a good spot to end on the spotted wing, even though we didn't get to talk about other aspects of life cycle disruption. Talk about it all day, yeah. <laughs> uh, which really is so interesting, and it's geez, it's a it's it's a pest that's just affecting so many of us because because so many of us, even who aren't orchardists or or specifically focus on fruit, still have a little strawberry yeah. patch, for example, that that can be affected. Yeah, for sure. Um, but. We're also, we're going to end on asking how people can find out more. So, so, you know, if, 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 if people's, if you've piqued people's interest, they'll be able to, to access, uh, you know, more information. And we'll talk about at the end of our conversation, but I want to leave time to talk about another past you've been focusing on. And so if you are good to transition, then we could talk about the apple clearwing moth. And so does that sound okay? Yeah, absolutely. And so the apple clearwing moth, 
Um, I believe it was detected in BC around 2005 uh, in the Snoqualmie, and its its distribution was pretty restricted at that time. My colleague, Dr. Gary Judd, has focused his research program largely on that insect for the last 10 years and has, has made a lot of progress understanding the chemical ecology, how to design effective traps, and there's been a lot of progress in terms of insecticide management. But we know that growers are really, really struggling, particularly organic growers, really struggling to manage apple clearing moth. And we're in a situation now in the Okanagan Valley where apple trees are dying and we don't necessarily know why. So a number of scientists with Agriculture Canada were part of a, a large national project that looks at the phenomenon called sudden or rapid apple decline. And it's a phenomenon whereby apple trees are, are dying in the orchard row. And we think there's likely a number of uh, factors. And basically we have a number of scientists in different areas testing different hypotheses to try to hone in on what factors are influencing apple, this apple trees to decline and die. And for myself and Dr. Judd, what's the role of the apple clearwing moth in that interaction in tree death? Okay, so, but you're talking to a layperson as regards to this stuff. So um, we'll talk about that research in just a moment, but backing up for a sec. So the apple clearwing moth may have a role in this, in, in this um, die-off that is currently got us puzzled. Is it, is it in and of itself, though, just a, a challenging pest? And, and could you very briefly talk about um, how, it, how it interacts with, with ap apple trees? Yeah, for sure. So this insect is native to Central Europe. And what's really interesting is it's it's not really been considered a pest of apple or plum, which it also can attack um, in Europe until quite recently as well. So here in North America, the, the primary issue is that the apple clearing moth, so I talked about ovipositors when I talked about spotted wing, this moth has a crazy ovipositor. It's like a big needle. And it, it primarily goes after the graft union and it can lay its eggs right into the graft union. And then the larvae do what we would call bore. So the larva is the immature stage of the insect, which we should have mentioned before. They can bore just under the bark of the tree, create little galleries and really divert a lot of phloem away from the, the production and the, the vitality of the tree. On its own, it, it definitely has an impact on reducing the vigor of the tree and reducing the, the number and maybe the quality of the fruit. Um, but where we think it's, we're really running into problems is that it creates a wound in the tree where other pathogens, viruses, bacteria, for instance, can enter the tree and that those themselves may be more implicated in this rapid apple decline, but that they, the tree is weakened in part from apple clearwing and provides an entry. So kind of multiple stressors going on and apple clearwing we think certainly plays quite a big role. Um, even if it's not the actual cause of death, um, it's like the big gaping wound on your leg that maybe leads to sepsis. Okay, so uh, that's great. That's a good segue. Uh, tell, 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 tell us about um, the, the, your specific research, please. Right. So I mentioned in, in Europe, it's not where it comes from. It's not been a big problem. And, and so we're doing the similar kind of work. Um, and so I have colleagues based in, in Switzerland. And actually, I was supposed to go this past summer. But of course, international travel wasn't, uh, wasn't a good idea. 
So my colleague, uh, Dr. Tim Haya, at an organization in Switzerland called CABI, the Center for Agricultural Biosciences, we work really closely with them. And he went out to orchards all through Switzerland. Uh, we'd hoped to go to France and Poland and Germany as well, but he could just stay within Switzerland. But he's looking to see what are these natural enemies of apple clearing moth in Europe. And along the same lines as with spotted wing, can we find any that would be specific enough to apple clearwing moth that they would be safe to bring in and act as a biological control, hopefully reducing and substantially reducing the numbers of apple clearwing, and hopefully along with that, these associated impacts. So you're doing this research despite, I just want to make sure I understand that as far as this sudden die-off problem, which, which sounds like it's multifaceted, it's not... We can't say it is known absolutely that the moth is 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 causing the entry point for whatever other call it disease or pathogens are, are causing the trees to die or are we at the point where we're, we've identified the moth as the culprit so it's it sort of happened that in the Samilkameen valley uh dr judd and colleagues were able to determine that apple clearwing on its own has a really devastating impact and kill, can kill trees on its own and at the same time, apple clearing moth has spread through the entire Okanagan and has reached really high population densities in the North Okanagan as well. And there was a, a five-year project that um, my colleague Tamara Richardson uh, led and the name of, yeah, I could, I'd have to get, that would be a good go to founder for more information in terms of who funded that project, um, for instance. But there was a five-year project really looking at the effect of mass trapping and if that could really reduce apple clearing populations in the system. Because even before we had the problem of the rapid or sudden apple decline, trees were dying from apple clearing moth. And Dr. Judd and uh, Tamara Richardson have demonstrated that the impacts of apple clearing on their own were quite devastating. And so when I came to the Okanagan Valley about two and a half years ago, and when I was sort of preparing to come, I, I had spoken with Tamara, I had spoken with others, and they had said, you know, we really need a biological control agent for apple clearing moth. 